The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Time. Facts are assertions. From the Institute of Art and Ideas. We examine every aspect of contemporary thinking. What is love? Is it real? Is democracy illusory and incoherent? Finding cracks in the way we understand the world. I think there is a crisis of values. Realism has failed. We debate the way forward with today's leading thinkers. We're all trying to understand what the hell is going on. A live podcast production from the Institute of Art and Ideas. In today's podcast, former MP Charlotte Leslie presents her view on how to counter terrorism with the politics of love. I was up the Twin Towers a month before 9-11 on my birthday on August the 11th, 2001. And um, I was taken up there by a friend. It was my birthday treat. And it was one of those moments in life that you, you never, ever forget. I was so distant compared to so many people from that terrible event. But what I felt when I was up there and what happened a month later shaped my life. And uh, my friend took me up, and it was supposed to be a treat, and I said, we've got to get off, we've got to get off. This is two fingers to a very unequal world, there's going to be a bomb. And this was my birthday treat, and he didn't take to this too kindly. And I stayed up there for about 10, 15 minutes. And during that time, we had the discussion of whether, if there was a bomb, whether you'd rather burn or jump. And then, in the slightly dark way that such conversations take place, we were both swimmers at university, and we discussed, looking over the parapet down onto the New York streets below, whether if we did a racing dive off the end of the parapet, whether we'd hit the other side of the street or not. Forward wind a month later, I was sitting in a sofa in Chicago and watched, like many of us, people make that decision live on television. And that terrible spectacle and America's reaction to it changed my life forever. I made three calls, one to my mum to say I was okay, second one to my airline saying, I really need to come home now, please. My flight was booked for the 13th. And the third one to my university saying, I can't do that master's, which I was scheduled to start in a couple of weeks, because I was so terrified at America's reaction of good and evil and God on our side that I had some naive feeling that a global catastrophe was going to precipitate out of this event. And I thought there were two ways in which to get involved in this, media and politics. I thought politics was a load of impotent old men barking at each other, and I thought media was a far better way to get involved and do things. So I, am, I landed home a few days later and embarked on my sparkling media career, which took me to being a researcher at The Weakest Link in 2003. <laughs> when we were putting contestants into shows, and I can tell you that every good Weakest Link show contains one totty and one irritant, and it was my job to find these people. 
which was not what I wanted to be doing, as I saw our country make what I think is going to be seen as one of the worst decisions of the century, if not more. I spoke to a Kurdish chap at Shepherd's Bush Market near where I was working at the time, and I said, am I right in thinking, because you probably know better than me, that we have this incredibly wrong? And he said, yes, he said, Saddam is a monster, believe me, I know, but what follows him will be worse. And that was the moment, together with the political leaflet that came through my door, I thought, you know what, games shows just ain't cutting it for me, maybe I should go into politics. But that whole saga, I think, and our, our hindsight on it now, shows how little we actually understood of what was going on at that time. We understand the Middle East a little more now. Um, radical Islam, I would suggest, we don't really understand at all, and politically, particularly the political class, whose job it may well be to try and steer our civilization through this insurgent threat to our way of life. We're very good at using political mechanisms, usually military in world affairs, um, for political issues. And I was one of those who very reluctantly voted for airstrikes to be continued from Iraq to Syria against IS very much against that state aspect of the Islamic State, so-called Islamic State, that so-called Islamists are trying to form in order to cut off their financial supplies and the sophistication of the military capability that they are using their state for. However, that doesn't begin to talk about how we kill the idea. And what we do know from the history and the rise of radical Islam is that you can kill the manifestation, Daesh, as I prefer to call it, that we are dealing with now. But that idea will only take form in another way, in another shape, even if we manage to eradicate the state manifestations of what we're seeing. So the answer that we, both as a society and as politicians, have to answer is how do we begin to kill that idea? Well, the first thing I'd suggest is that you've got to understand it. One of the most frustrating reactions I find from all of our leaders is that when an atrocity happens, we do two things. We firstly simply label them as evil, which is a very easy way out, and it's very obvious why we do such a thing, but it doesn't really help very much. And the second thing we do is we just condemn it and say, you shouldn't do that, very bad, don't do it again. Neither of those things actually does very much at all to prevent it from happening again. It might make us feel very good about ourselves that we have morally condemned this thing, but it doesn't have very much practical use after that. What I'd suggest is that we actually have to begin to get under the skin of the things we find most frightening and most repugnant to understand why individuals are committing such extraordinary acts of terror and have such an extraordinary ideology that seems to place death at the forefront of what they believe in. Now, I'm not going to present any clear answers here, and I think you should be very suspicious of me were I to try to do so. But I wanted to, to present some pointers through which we might begin to do that. Now, one of the pointers in terms of understanding is, I think, to look at what drives people's behavior regardless of who we are. And I'd put to you that there are three elements that we all need and we all crave. Um, firstly is a sense of identity. Who am I? What am I doing here? The what am I doing here points to a sense of purpose, a reason why we are who we are and we're here, why we are here. And thirdly, human beings need a sense of community. If you look at young men, young women as well, who become terrorists throughout history, not only terrorists for Islamic State and extreme Islam, 
they're looking for pretty much the same things. You also find that young people who join gangs are looking for pretty much the same things. A sense of identity, a sense of purpose, and a sense of community. One of the things I posit is, in a very post-secular world, we risk having, in our attempts for tolerance and accommodation of everybody, a vacuum of values. But the problem with a vacuum of values is we are confused about over how we incorporate, assimilate, and integrate people different from ourselves into our community, is that value systems that are not at all uncertain about who they are and what they are and stand for begin to fill that vacuum. The second challenge we have is that in the West, we are very uncomfortable and slightly uh, naive and unable to understand the role of faith in politics in the, in the role that faith plays in the Middle East. If you go to many, many Middle Eastern countries, the Muslim identity of that country, the faith identity of that country, is very tied up in the political structures. And that's not the Islamic state that we all fear, that's the way faith and society are integrated in a way that may have been the case 200 years ago here, but is no longer the case. Which makes politicians very clumsy at trying to deal with, forge relationships, understand with cultures and countries for whom faith and politics are fundamentally interrelated in a way that we find very difficult to understand. So that presents us with a challenge of combating and filling that vacuum of values. What we do know from what we know about terrorism and countering extremism is that it's absolutely no good at all to say that's very naughty, don't do it again, or that's very evil, don't do it again. The only thing that actually works is to counter the offerings made by extremists in terms of community, identity, and purpose with something that's better, something that's more attractive, something that hits those buttons that, people are, be that are being met by people who want to destroy our way of life. So what does that kind of alternative narrative look like? And how can we, here in Hay, and then back in our own lives and back in our communities, whether we're in politics or any other walk of life, how can we begin to help forge that kind of alternative value system, which is going to become viral in a way that the Islamic extremist viral, uh, value system has in order to combat that? Well, it's, it's not completely hopeless. You have examples where you look at sport. I do a lot of work with young men in boxing clubs, many of whom will sit down and tell you how before they joined that boxing club, they were gang members, committed all sorts of crimes, felt they had nothing to lose, and had joined the gang because it provided them with, guess what, a sense of purpose, identity, and community. When someone said to them, often a policeman or often an ex-gang -ex member who'd become a boxer themselves, said, you know, come and join the boxing club, without fail, the thing that nearly everybody says is, was, is that boxing taught them that hatred and anger are weak. And nearly every kid says, I used to be a real fighter, I used to be very violent. Boxing taught me how to walk away from a fight. It taught me that aggression and lack of control and violence is weak. And I think that's an extremely interesting lesson for how we begin to counter some of the values that are seen as macho, strong, exciting and militant. And something that annoys me quite a lot is we've left unchallenged the idea that hatred and extremism is somehow strong. Now, growing up, we all remember a time when we're toddlers, and if you don't like something, you scream, and if you don't like someone at kindergarten, you might want to steal their toys or punch them in the face. Thankfully, as we grow up and become adults, we learn that you don't do that. 
There may be someone opposite you who's talking absolute rubbish who you really don't like at all. But as you become more civilized, you have more control of yourself and your emotions, you're at least tolerant of them and at best compassionate towards them. We need to find some kind of narrative as a society that points out the very basic truth that hatred is very weak. Hatred is what happens when you give in to your own very basic primal emotions and probably when you feel slightly threatened by something that you find repugnant and you don't like. However, the value systems of ISIS, which is predominantly based on hatred, are extremely good. Because what's the most natural reaction to people who blow themselves up and kill innocent civilians? Well, the most natural reaction is hate. So by the very reaction from people who they are trying to destroy, they are expanding their values empire of hatred. So hate is exactly the thing we should not fall to when responding to Islamic State. It's a very, very difficult thing to encompass and a very difficult thing for a politician to say because it's not anything that anybody wants to hear because it's the most natural human reaction in the world. But if we give in to that hate, we're propagating the very same value system that ISIS is trying to propagate. It's very interesting as well that we're seeing, through a lot of ways, the epidemic of hatred spread. As we become more determined to do and be the right thing, as our own morality becomes, in a sense, more of a badge of our identity for ourselves, we risk falling into a situation where we create our own identity by the things we believe in and then the things we propagate, and we define ourselves against people who are not like us. And as an MP, it, it's very interesting to see the development of this over time. Um, you see people believe in something, um, be it, I'll use, I'll use some examples, uh, animal rights, which is, I think, an example. We can all think of very extreme actions taken by some people with very noble intentions. People have a code of values, which are ostensibly a good code of values. And then because they believe in them so much and become a sort of army of it, they're prepared to do really quite appalling things from online abuse to attacks of vandalism and violence, um, which I experienced during the general election, which was a very interesting thing to experience, in order to propagate those views. You see it in everyday terms in social media, where people who claim to be standing for a compassionate point of view to society feel it's absolutely acceptable to be extremely abusive and full of hatred at anyone who doesn't agree with them. So we all risk, in our attempts to be good people, falling into the false syllogism of saying, I think this, I am human. You do not think this, therefore you are not human, therefore I can do anything I like to you. And something that concerns me quite a lot is the epidemic of hatred that seems to be spread through social media um, and through some increasingly extreme groups on the fringes of our society. It concerns me because that is exactly the same kind of mentality as you see in very hardline Islamic extremism. The kind of Islamic extremism that says, this is my brand of Islam, you may call yourself a Muslim, but you don't agree with me, so therefore you're not a Muslim, therefore I can kill you. It's known as takfiri Islam, and it was first really propagated by um, an Egyptian academic called Saeed Qutb. But that intolerance of anyone who doesn't think like you, even if it's under the badge of compassion and tolerance, is exactly the same kind of mentality as Islamic State encompasses. And we all are vulnerable to falling into that trap. So how do you combat it? How do we combat it from social media today to the great 
battles of values that are taking place on our global stage. It's to really find some kind of form to propagate the narrative that hatred is weak, um, that if you want to be a muscular, powerful, strong force, it is much more impressive to turn the other cheek, to use a biblical expression, to show compassion, care and understanding towards those who would seek to destroy you than to respond in kind. I'm going to finish by what I think is an extremely powerful, tangible illustration of how we can begin as a society to combat Islamic State in the battle for values. And it's a real case of, and some of you may remember reading this in the news, of 21 Coptic Christians, Coptic Egyptian Christians, who were executed in Libya by Islamic State. And these 21 Copts were lined up, and as they knelt down to be beheaded, with their executors shouting Allah Akbar all over the place. They prayed, Father forgive, to their executors, and they were beheaded. Islamic State did what it usually does, and it put the video up on their website, and then they realized something very interesting, that actually they looked pathetic, that these guys in black, waving flags all over the place and shouting out stuff, compared to the dignity of these 21 individuals who prepared to forgive the people who are about to execute them, they looked absolutely pathetic, and they took the video down. That is a very powerful and ultimate demonstration of actually how we defeat Islamic State. Hopefully none of us will ever be in the position to be able to make such a stand. But it does demonstrate that if we want to defeat this terrible thing, we do have to make a stand, and making a stand is never easy. We can't just sit back and expect being nice to be the same thing as being good. But we have been provided a template with which to do that. And if we start small in our everyday lives and on our interactions in social media, maybe it will be that we never have to go big. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. Let us know what you thought by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag politics of love. And if you enjoyed this podcast, you can watch Charlotte on the IAI TV player in the debate, The New Left and Right. Join us for our next podcast, where we'll be hearing a debate on how the self is constructed. And if you want to listen to more episodes, then do subscribe to the Philosophy for Our Times podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher for more big ideas on the go.